0: the National Archives podcast series. This talk is called The Fall of Wolsey. It was presented by Daniel Gosling and recorded on Friday, the 4th of October, 2019 at the National Archives, Q. Dan is our Early Modern Legal Specialist and his research interests include legal jurisdiction and education, and his most recent research was published in the 15th Century Journal. His PhD focused on the history of Primanure, and it is this research that he will talk about today in the context of Thomas Wolsey's Fall from Grace. Dan has the enviable talent of explaining complex legal history in an understandable and entertaining manner, um, and I'm sure this is going to be a brilliant talk, so please join me to welcome him to the stage. Some of you may know who Thomas Wolsey is already, but I'll give a bit of context anyway. So in the first half of King Henry VIII's reign, no one, by the king himself, held as much power as Thomas Wolsey. He was Lord Chancellor and Henry's first minister, responsible for managing the king's council and executing royal policy. the church he was archbishop of york a cardinal and a papal legate making him the highest spiritual authority in england answerable only to the pope in ecclesiastical matters however in october 1529 after 14 years as england's premier minister thomas wolsey fell out of the king's favor brought low in the court of king's bench on a charge of primi nere the offense of undermining royal authority today i'm going to take us through this fall from grace Uh, find out how Wolsey lost the confidence of Henry VIII and what Primer was and why Wolsey was guilty of it and then a little bit about what happened after this fall in October 1529. We're celebrating the 490th anniversary this month so I'm sure there'll be lots of parties and celebrations (laughs) for Primer and for poor old Wolsey. Wolsey's position in government between 1515 and 1529 mean that we have hundreds, if not thousands, of original documents relating to Wolsey in some way held here at the National Archives, from royal licences, granting and promotions, state papers written and uh, received by Wolsey himself, to chancery and star chamber bills addressed to Wolsey as overseer of these courts during his tenure as chancellor. His fall too, can be traced through the legal records, personal letters and ambassador reports held here and at other UK and European archives. But first, who was Thomas Wolsey and how did he become the Premier Statesman in Henry VIII's England? Wolsey was born in Ipswich around 1472, 1473, to Robert Wolsey, reputedly a butcher, and his wife, Joan Dawndy. He was educated in Ipswich before proceeding to Oxford where he graduated BA from Magdalen College in 1486 at the age of 15 and took the nickname the boy bachelor apparently. Wolsey came into the orbit of the royal household in the final decade of Henry VII's reign be- and became a royal chaplain in 1507. During his early years Wolsey distinguished himself as industrious, administratively adept and perhaps most importantly for a subordinate to kings and councillors, willing to take on the most tedious tasks but he was also unashamedly ambitious and he attached himself to those in Henry VII's council who he thought to be the most influential, people such as Richard Fox, the Bishop of Winchester, and Sir Thomas Lovell. The accession of Henry VIII in 1509 gave the ambitious Wolsey further opportunity to rise through the ranks. He was made King's Almoner in November 1509, a position that gave him a seat on the Privy Council, and he quickly made himself invaluable to the young king recognizing the teenage Henry's dislike for routine work and making sure the king knew that Wolsey was a safe pair of hands to see that work completed. He helped facilitate the young king's desire for war and glory against France in the 1510s, and moderate military success in 1513 kept Henry happy, and Wolsey's role in negotiating the Anglo-French Treaty of 1514, which secured a temporary peace between the two nations, kept Wolsey in the king's good graces. So in 1515, when the chancellorship became vacant, it was Wolsey that was promoted, and it had taken him only six years to rise from Privy Council member to the king's chief minister. In the ecclesiastical sphere too, Wolsey had risen stratospherically quickly. Under Henry VII, he was being made Dean of Lincoln and Hereford cathedrals, and followed by a space of ecclesiastical appointments under Henry VIII, He was made Canon of Windsor in 1511, Bishop of Lincoln and Archbishop of York in 1514, and Cardinal in 1515. But in 1515, Wolsey was not yet England's chief cleric. That honour fell to William Warren, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Wolsey as Archbishop of York was only second in the hierarchy of the English church. Though his appointment as Cardinal gave him a great deal of prestige, and those fancy red robes and hat that you often see him in, it conferred no extra authority over the See of Canterbury. Wolsey could only supersede this authority if he was made papal legate or legatilateri. If you became legate, you had authority second to the Pope himself. This came to pass in 1518, when, at the behest of Henry VIII, the Pope gave Wolsey and Cardinal Lorenzo Campeggio, more on him later, joint authority to raise funds for a crusade against the Ottoman Empire. And this legateship was eventually granted for life in 1524. Once in power, the king's favorites spent lavishly on buildings, paintings, and grand feasts. and by 1519, Thomas Wolsey was the king's wealthiest subject with an estimated wealth of around nine and a half thousand pounds. much of which was kept on the upkeep of his household, which in 1524 numbered 429 and eclipsed the households of the, of the king's other councillors and subjects. He endowed two cardinals' colleges, one in Ipswich, his hometown the Cardinal College of St. Mary, and one at Oxford, grant by Wolsey to the dean of his college at Ipswich, granting lands for the support of the college. And There's also a really good representation of Wolsey's seal there, with the apostles Peter and Paul. He was also responsible for the building of Hampton Court Palace, begun in 1515. Hampton Court was designed to be lavish, to compete with the cardinals' palaces on the continent, and show to foreign dignitaries that Henry's favoured minister lived as lavishly as his European (coughs) counterparts. And it's at Hampton Court that a portrayal of one of Wolsey's greatest successes on the international stage, the Field of the Cloth of Gold, is now kept. This grand meeting of the kings of England and France, Henry VIII and Francis I in 1520, was arranged by Wolsey, ostensibly to negotiate peace between Christian nations and discuss the appointment of Charles V as the new Holy Roman Emperor, but in reality was more of an opportunity for both rulers to show off their Renaissance credentials to the other, with jousting, feasting, and other celebratory events held during the meeting. This grand display followed up Wolsey's international success in negotiating the 1518 Treaty of London, which was a non-aggression pact between the major European nations of Burgundy, France, England, the Holy Roman Empire, the Netherlands, the Papal States, and Spain. At home, too, Wolsey was tireless throughout his chancellorship, responsible for the rejuvenation of conciliar justice, sitting as judge in the Court of Chancery, the Chancellor's Court, And Star Chamber, the judicial arm of the Council, and working to overhaul the traditional 15th and 10th system of taxation in England, and this latter project was unsurprisingly far less successful and popular. Regardless of any negative portrayal of Wolsey that came later, it's fair to say that Wolsey's successes were achieved through a combination of talent, tenacity, and ability to satisfy the young king's whims. But holding Henry's favour was crucial to Wolsey. The cardinal's great successes in the late uh, late 1510s and 1520s, plus his privileged position next to the king, meant that resentment was rife within the king's council and the nobility. If Wolsey was monopolising the king's time and favour, not to mention the most profitable lands and titles, others couldn't flourish. One of Wolsey's most well-known contemporary critics was the poet John Skelton, who in the early 1520s wrote several satirical verses aimed at Wolsey. Skelton's Why Come Ye Not to Court, which was written around 1522, and attacks Wolsey's physical deficiencies, such as his poor eyesight, claims he was syphilitic, and most of all, suggests that Wolsey was setting himself up as an equal to Henry VIII, such as in the building of his grand palace at Hampton Court. But in reality, these poems didn't really pose a serious threat to Wolsey, and we don't think they were published until after both Wolsey and Skelton were dead anyway. The cardinal's lavish lifestyle and household reflected positively uh, on the king to foreign dignitaries and Henry was confident that Wolsey was loyal to him wholeheartedly. Skelton's poems do, however, show that there's some underlying resentment of Wolsey in certain pockets of English society from at least the early 1520s. In terms of Wolsey's political rivals, two of the names that crop up time and again are Thomas Howard, the Duke of Norfolk, and Charles Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk. Norfolk in particular is often singled out as Wolsey's chief opponent throughout the 1520s. He was uncle to Anne Boleyn, more on her later, and after Wolsey's fall took a prominent position in Henry's new council. In the 1520s he'd been largely away from the king, whether this is by Wolsey's design or not is open for debate, and he was in Ireland until 1522 and then campaigning in France and Scotland. He was Lord Treasurer from 1522, And from 1525 was heavily involved with government policy and maintaining law and order. But did he have anything against Wolsey? Well, possibly. While defending the northern border in 1523-24, Norfolk was recorded as being incredibly critical of stay at home courtiers such as Wolsey, though this may have been as much in frustration at their relative comfort compared to his suffering the hardships of a typical winter in the north of England. Other instances in the 1520s between Wolsey and Norfolk certainly show a professional rivalry between the two, but whether that's enough for Norfolk to head up a faction, an anti-Wolsey Wolsey faction, which is the popular view, is less certain. Uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest the Duke of Suffolk and Wolsey uh, in their younger days were quite close friends. This friendship became strained, though, in 1515, when Suffolk married the king's sister Mary before seeking Henry's permission. The king was furious and Wolsey had to work hard to calm the king down, which undoubtedly put a strain on the relationship with Suffolk. Again, there's little sign that Suffolk harboured any serious enmity towards Wolsey, though, like Norfolk and everyone else in Henry's council, he was ambitious from a noble family and surely willing to take advantage of any weaknesses shown by Wolsey. But these rivals and criticisms were moot while Wolsey held the king's trust. His work in the 1510s and 1520s had earned Wolsey privileged status. But in the second half of the 1520s, as Wolsey started to fail to give the king what he wanted, he started to lose the king's ear and the king's trust. And this is actually what will spell his end, this loss loss of faith that Henry has in Wolsey. Wolsey's first main failure was the amicable grant of 1525. Henry needed money for war in France and Wolsey was the man tasked with collecting it. From 1522, Wolsey had already soured his relationship with Parliament, who could grant taxes and subsidies, and the taxpayers for attempting various different methods of extracting cash from them. But in 1525, he went one further, and attempted to bypass Parliament altogether and collect the so-called amicable grant from taxpayers. This caused an uproar across England and led to dangerous levels of discontent, and the nobility had to be sent across the country as peacekeepers to avoid outright rebellion. The amicable grant failed to secure Henry the funds he needed, there was no invasion of France, and Wolsey was largely blamed. But this alone in the 1520s wasn't wasn't enough to unseat Wolsey. Unfortunately for the cardinal, a much more pressing matter, and one much closer to the king's heart, was developing. Henry VIII's great matter, his investigation into ways he could legally annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, became a key focus for the king during the 1520s. Henry was increasingly concerned that Catherine would be unable to produce him a male heir. Catherine's last pregnancy had been in 1519 and only one of their children had lived more than a few days. That was Princess Mary who obviously later became Mary I and incidentally Wolsey was her godfather. Henry's own mortality may well have uh, played in his mind also. In 1525 Henry was 34. Uh, Catherine turned 40 in December of 1525 as well. Henry's father had died at age 52 and his maternal grandfather Edward at age 41. If the king desired a male heir of age, after all England had a rather spotty history of minority kings, then he had to find a way to annul his marriage and quickly. Henry's chosen course was to claim that his marriage to Catherine was invalid because she had previously been uh, been married and crucially consummated said marriage to Henry's older brother, the late Prince Arthur. So where did Wolsey fit into all this? Well, as lead churchman in England, Wolsey was well placed to look into the matter for Henry. Additionally, Wolsey had an extensive background in international diplomacy, so it's unsurprising to see Wolsey attempting to solve Henry's great matter from pretty much as soon as Henry starts to sort of send people out to f- send his feelers out to see how he can go about doing it. So the quote is from Wolsey to Henry VIII in September 1527, with Wolsey using the actual phrase "the secret matter," assuring him that Wolsey has <coughs> plans to ensure that Catherine's cause isn't heard. At in the papal courts and that Wolsey's plans will ensure Henry can annul from Catherine. By this point, it wasn't really a secret cause because Catherine actually found out earlier in 1527 and went to the Pope to put forward her opinion on the matter. For Henry to get his own way, it was crucial that the case be heard in England, where he held most sway. Therefore, in December 1527, Henry sent a mission to Rome requesting a legatine commission empowering cardinals Wolsey and Lorenzo Campeggio to hear and settle the case in England. But the Pope, Clement VII, was dragging his feet. Events on the continent had meant that Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, had effective control of Italy and the Papal States. The sack of Rome in 1527 by Charles's forces had made the Pope essentially a captive of the Holy Roman Emperor. This was problematic for Henry's cause because Charles was also Catherine of Arica's nephew. But Cardinal Campeggio did arrive in England in October 1528, and he had the much-needed papal commission to investigate the king's great matter in England. But he also had secret orders not to use it, and he would later destroy it, and more instructions to procrastinate. Clement VII was buying time in the hope that the matter would resolve itself. At this point, it's probably worth considering where Anne Boleyn, future second wife of Henry VIII, fits into all this. Popular opinion is that the anti Wolsey faction, including the Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk, banded around Anne in 1529 and encouraged her to voice her doubts about, Wolsey, about Wolsey's loyalty to Henry. The extent to which this is true is unknown. Frustratingly, secret cabals rarely live behind paper trails. However, by January 1529, it does seem that Anne had lost faith in Wolsey's ability to secure the king his annulment quickly. Campeggio had arrived in October 1528 with a papal commission, and still nothing had happened. Surely Wolsey, with all his power as as England's highest churchman, must be to blame for the hold-up, or could be doing more. If Anne truly believed that Wolsey was intentionally holding up the annulment proceedings, then the failure of the... The failure of the legatory proceedings in England would be disastrous for Wolsey and after all at this time had the king's ear and his heart and any doubts she raised would certainly be considered. But did Henry already have doubts about his former favourite minister? Some ambassador reports from around January and February 1529 suggest this is the case and the king was starting to begin to question if Wolsey could actually succeed in this matter. Though Ambassador reports should always be taken with a pinch of salt, as they often report, part of the picture and only part of the picture, we do know that Henry no longer trusted Wolsey solely to get the job done. And one of the things that increasingly happens through the 1520s, which certainly contributes a lot to Wolsey's downfall, was that Henry starts to rely on his other councillors rather than solely Wolsey, which is what you see from about 1515 to 1520. He relies very heavily on Wolsey to just get on with the job. In June 1529... The king had sent the Duke of Suffolk to meet with Francis I to find out the French king's opinion of Cardinal Campeggio regarding the annulment and the upcoming proceedings uh, at Court in England. Suffolk relayed to Henry VIII that Francis I had always mistrusted Campeggio, who was an imperialist and loyal to Charles V, and so pressed the French king for his opinion of Wolsey. When Francis had met Wolsey at Amiens in 1527, he says, Wolsey was for the annulment as far as he could tell, However, Francis then goes on to warn Henry not to put too much trust in just one man and reminds Henry of Wolsey's closeness to the Pope and Campeggio, who were definitely not in favour of Henry's great matter. So going into the summer of 1529, it does appear as though Wolsey's on very thin ice and, Wolsey's, um, and Henry's confidence in him is waning. But there was still hope while an, Engli- an English legatine court uh, while, while I was permission to hold an English English legatee in court to solve the matter. So the picture here is of the license that Henry puts his seal to on 30 May 1529, which summons Cardinals Wolsey and Campeggio and licenses them to investigate the validity of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And you can see uh, Henry VIII, by the grace of God, in King of England and France, defender of the faith. And then it goes into the reason for this license, Um, on the second line that's magnified, you can see the first two letters of Catherine. I'm really annoyingly to go over onto the next line, but Katharina Regina valid or invalid contract or validity of the the marriage contract. And then you can see Thomas St Cecilia of York and Lawrence St Maria uh, of Campeggio. So the Legatine court assembled at Blackfriars in June 1529 with both Catherine and Henry in attendance. This meeting has been immortalised in Shakespeare's Henry VIII, with Catherine giving Henry an impassioned speech asking him to admit that her marriage to Arthur was never consummated. Henry remained silent, Catherine walked out, and the matter remained unresolved. Though Wolsey, who's seated sort of centre back in this painting in his Cardinal's robes, is central to Shakespeare's portrayal of these events and later blamed for its failure, it's the other crimson robed figure on the right, Cardinal Campeggio who we know definitely desired to see the matter fail. Campeggio believed an earlier papal commission that was granted by Julius II to allow Henry VIII and Catherine to marry in 1509 negated his commission to hear this great matter. So when talks between Henry and Catherine broke down, Campeggio tried to make the matter disappear by proroguing it until October. However, by that point, the Pope had summoned the parties to Rome to decide the matter. The Blackfriars conference had failed and it was going to be taken to Rome. And more importantly, Wolsey had failed to get the king what he wanted. And Henry was not happy. In the months that followed, Wolsey was kept at arm's length from the king while Henry decided what to do with him. Henry had finally lost patience with his former favourite, knew there were others in government that could get the job done and knew that punishing the highest church authority in England, Wolsey, in the king's own courts, would send a powerful message to the papacy about just how strongly he felt about his great matter. Luckily for Henry, there's an offence for that. Wolsey was finally brought low on a charge of primi the offence of undermining royal authority. On 9th of October 1529, Christopher Hales, the Attorney General, started the legal process in King's Bench that, within the month, would lose Wolsey everything. But what did primi actually mean? Primereary refers to three statutes which were enacted, sorry, three statutes which were enacted in the 14th century in 1353, 1365 and 1393. Though by the Tudor period the only one they're really concerned with is the 1393 so-called Great Statute of Primereary. In the 14th century these statutes were designed to protect royal authority within the realm. The late medieval justice system was home to several overlapping jurisdictions from English common law to ecclesiastical law and often there were several different courts where one could take their dispute, depending on how you framed the offence. Prime existed to ensure that matters which could be heard in one of the king's courts, any other thing which touched the king against him, his crown and his regality or his realm, were not taken to the court of Rome or elsewhere. This worked both ways, and it was also an offence under the 1393 statute to purchase anything from the court of Rome or elsewhere that could undermine royal authority within the realm. For instance, if a cleric purchased a papal bull that went against the royal order or presented to a vacant English benefice that was in the gift of the king or another one of his subjects, i.e. not in the gift of the Pope. Over the 15th and early 16th centuries, this offence became incredibly wide-ranging and was applied to cases heard in English ecclesiastical courts which should have gone to the king's common law courts, used as a threat against Cardinal Henry Beaufort when he accepted the cardinal's hat without ensuring he first had royal approval, and in 1515, it was even suggested that English heresy proceedings, one of the highest ecclesiastical offences, could fall under the remit of Priminere if the accused was acting under royal instruction. So what was Wolsey's specific offence? How, how had he undermined royal authority by purchasing or pursuing something in the court of Rome or elsewhere? Luckily, because we're now dealing with legal record rather than letters that are open to interpretation, we know for sure exactly what his charges were. And this is from the King's Bench plea roll. So on the 9th of October 1529, as I said, Christopher Hales, the Attorney General, appeared in the King's Bench, accusing Wolsey of procuring bulls from Clement VII to make himself legate, and publishing them on 28th of August 1523, 1523, without the King's foreknowledge. Then, using this legatine authority, Wolsey conferred the parish church of Stoke near Guildford in Surrey to one James Gorton, although Robert Prior of St Pancras Lewis was the true patron. Additionally, the pleroy goes on to add, he caused the wills of various persons dying in other dioceses than his own to be proved before his commissioners, instituted legatine visitations, and procured for himself surreptitiously several large pensions from various abbots by virtue of this illegal legatine authority. He was accordingly attached, and the sheriff was commanded to produce him in the king's bench on Saturday after the month of Michaelmas, which is the 30th of October, so a few weeks after the indictment is first brought. Before the 30th, however, another primary action was brought against Wolsey on the 20th of October, and this is preserved on the following rotula on the plea roll. This time Wolsey was accused of using his authority to present to the parish church of Gulby in Leicestershire to John Allen, now Archbishop of Dublin, and this was a presentation that occurred in 1523. So there's a couple of historic offences that he's being accused of here. And it's, the timing of it is critical because they've waited six years sort of building up a case against him. And it's only once that he falls out of Henry's favour that Henry goes, yep, yeah, I'm going to get rid of you now. But Wolsey didn't appear in person on the 30th of October. Instead, John Skewis and Christopher Jenny appeared, producing a special writ of attorney to appear on the Cardinal's behalf. And to do this, Henry had to grant uh, Wolsey special licence, as by law one was meant to appear in person to answer a primary charge. So, we also have record of this on the close roll. Wolsey's attorneys pleaded that he didn't know that obtaining the balls was in contempt and prejudicial to the king or against the statutes of Priminiere. But this plea was to no avail when judgment was given that the cardinal should be put out of the king's protection and forfeit to Henry all of his lands and goods as per the terms of the statute. So, the important question is what, was Wolsey actually guilty of these charges? And the short answer is yes, he was. He'd procured balls to, present to become papal legates and provided to pay vacant benefices that were not his to give. However, the claim that Henry didn't know about all this is almost certainly a falsehood, but we don't have it in writing that Henry had gone, yes, pursue becoming a papal legate for life or yes, present to these benefices because Henry trusted Wolsey to act on his behalf. We do know that Henry was getting a bit annoyed with Wolsey interfering um, in the presentation of vacant benefices because a year earlier he'd actually chided Wolsey uh, for interfering in the election of Eleanor Carey, who was the sister of Anne Boleyn's brother-in-law. Um, but in, in this instance, Henry didn't hit him with a prime charge. But he was, he's getting a bit annoyed in fifteen twenty-eight about Wolsey's interference in these elections. So sometime in early October, Wolsey finds out about these charges against him. Whether or not he knows the specific charges, nor knows that there is an indictment in King's Pench against him, we're not sure. But as soon as he learns that there are charges against him, he writes this letter to the king pleading for mercy. He doesn't protest innocence. At this point, he may not have known the precise charges, but instead begs the king for forgiveness. And only a week after his indictment of Priminere, on the 17th of October, the very precise 6pm, <laughs> Wolsey surrendered the Great Seal to the Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk in his gallery at his house in Westminster. So he's not disputing these claims even though in the King's Bench on the 30th of October his attorneys say he didn't know he was doing any wrong. He's pre-empting the King's Bench case by going straight to the King, appealing for forgiveness and basically admitting his guilt. And what this document here is, is written admission that he was guilty of Priminiere. and this is five days after he relinquishes the great seal. So this is on the 22nd of October. It says, Wolsey by this present indenture acknowledges and confesses that he has not only deserved to sustain, suffer, and bear the dangers and penalties of the statutes and laws of the realm made and ordained against provisors and of other statutes whereby a process of promenera is ordained, but also and by the same laws has deserved to suffer perpetual imprisonment of his body at the king's will and pleasure, and to forfeit to the king's highness forever all manner of his lands, tenements, offices, etc., etc., etc. So he's admitting his guilt and saying, yes, I am susceptible to the punishments of primuliere. But the second part of the indenture, he tries to get out of the full punishments. And he basically says he humbly bese- beseeches the king to take whatever he thinks whatever he thinks is relevant to the punishments, rather than everything. He says, any singular sums of money, jewels, plates of gold and silver, and basically says, take whatever you want, but don't take everything from me. And he supplicates himself before the king in writing here. So from a legal perspective, Wolsey's downfall had taken just over three weeks, all in October. On the 9th, he received his first indictment of Pro and on the 30th, judgment was made against him in King's bench. But to what extent was he, as Shakespeare claimed, never to hope again? Luckily, we have original letters and correspondence from the end of 1529 to give us some idea about, firstly, how Woolsey was feeling in October through to December 1529, and also what happened in government during his absence, and what ambassadors thought of the great cardinal's fall. This letter by the French diplomat Jean de Bellet to the Duke de Montmorency was written on the day Wolsey surrendered his great seal, 17th of October, and describes Wolsey as so distraught that he could barely speak. He no longer desires the titles and influence he once held and just longs for Henry to forgive him. Here's a fuller version of the passage recorded in letters and papers, foreign and domestic, of Henry VIII, the great 19th century enterprise, which collects together original documents and letters relating to the reign of Henry. All of these entries and letters of papers have original documents behind them, which sometimes isn't clear. A lot of them relate to state papers, which we have in our collection, but some of them, like this one here, actually relate to uh, letters and letters in a collection other than ours. And I'm just going to take you down a little rabbit hole that I did to try and find out where this one came from. So from Le Grand 3, we can get to this French book from 1688, The Histoire du Divorce de Henri VIII Roy d'Angleterre de Catherine d'Aragon by Rachim Le Grand. And he does a transcription of all the letters and original correspondence he thinks is related to King Henry VIII's great matter. And I was very excited to find this. I was like, great. But then I saw another reference on the far right there. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have to do a little bit more digging to get back to the original letter, because we're still about a century out from 17th October uh, 1529. Uh, Luckily, on a hunch, I thought that Bibliothèque de Royale would now be in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. And very luckily, they've digitized a huge amount of their collection and it's available on their catalogue, um, Bibliothèque Nationale de France catalogue. So this is a digitized version of the original letter that Dubéle is writing. Why am I taking you down this rabbit hole? I mean, first, it's so that you can see the original French as opposed to the English translation. And if you want, you can impress your friends by saying the French and then saying, oh, this is what it means. Or even reading the letter and saying, oh, this is what it says. I can read it. But also because you don't really get a sense from these printed versions. But the second half of the letter is entirely in cipher. The stuff that's actually relating to the sort of juicy details of Wolsey's downfall is all in this cipher. But luckily, Legrand did all the hard work for us in deciphering that. And then, even luckier, J.S. Brewer translated it into English for those of us that have very rusty French at best. But that's it, that's a side over. We'll move back on to a different ambassador. Uh, This is uh, Eustace Chapuis, who was ambassador to Charles V at the same time that Du Du Bellay was. Chapariz's uh, letter to Charles V, this is written on 25th of October 1529, um, tells a huge amount of what's happening in the King's Council during Wolsey's fall. And basically, it's a very long letter that goes over several pages in letters and papers. And it lists through sort of Wolsey's downfall, what's happening, how the King is sort of making inventory of Wolsey's goods. So on the 21st of October, this is Chapuis recalling his letter, he met with the Duke of Norfolk as, according to Chapuis, the administration had fallen principally into his hands after Wolsey's fall. At one point, Chapuis remarks that Norfolk turned to me with a laugh and said, how glad the Emperor will be to hear of the fall of the Cardinal and his loss of office. Regardless of Norfolk's earlier designs against Wolsey, after his fall it clearly took no time in filling the void or saying bad things about Wolsey behind his back. Chapuis corroborates Doubelet's account that Wolsey was a wreck after surrendering the great seal and says that the king sent Wolsey a ring to give him cheer. In Cavendish's biography of Wolsey, George Cavendish was Wolsey's gentleman usher who wrote the official biography of the man um, about 30 years after Wolsey's downfall. Uh, In Cavendish's biography, this gift was an incredible lift for Wolsey and Wolsey was convinced that it meant that the king had decided to forgive him. Uh, Chapri's letter gives a slightly different opinion um, and says that the king has given him a ring so that Wolsey doesn't die before the king can get all of his assets, which tells a lot about Henry VIII as well. <laughs> like Du Bellay, Chapri had also got wind that Wolsey's enemies, enemies were not quite done with him and said that people say execrable things of him, all of which will be known at this parliament. But those who have raised the storm will not let his abate, not knowing if he returned to power what would become of them. And this is a reference to a set set of articles that are presented in the Parliament of December 1529 that detail Wolsey's many faults, and many of these were actually quite treasonous. But some people have been preparing articles against Wolsey earlier, from at least the summer of 1529, perhaps sensing that the king was starting to lose confidence in his favourite minister and thought, let's get some things in writing so that when the time is right we can put them to the king and go, look, get rid of him, there are better people now. So these articles are attributed to Thomas Darcy, he was first Baron Darcy, and he compiles several articles of complaints around, we don't know exactly when in 1529, we know it's before October when the preliminary charges are brought against him, and one of the complaints he brings is about providing some vacant benefits that Wolsey shouldn't provide to, so he's actually sort of going, here is a charge that you can lay against Wolsey. But nothing happened in the summer of 1529. He, we think he was presented to the king, but we think the king didn't really do anything with it or sat on it and waited and eventually brought the indictment of prime and era in king's bench. But I bring it up because in December 1529, a long list of articles was brought against Thomas Wolsey. Now he'd fallen from grace, king's counsellors and those, clo- those closest to the king, thought it was time to show just how much wrong was he had been doing in the 15 years that he was in power. And this is a 16th century copy, we don't actually have the originals, they don't survive, of these articles. So that's the first item of complaint. And you can see it goes on for a further 12 pages, listing all sorts of things from his sort of, using his authority in a way that was, he was appearing above, above the king. When he became cardinal, he made a big parade around London with his cardinal's hat and robes. And they went back to that, which is 15 years earlier, and said this is him wasting money and being vain. And whoever copied out the articles actually copied out all of the signatories to these articles as well, which is also very telling to see the people that are either against Wolsey, whether or not they were before that time, or whether they are now, they see that Wolsey's falling out of favour, they want to jump on the bandwagon. So you can see Thomas More at the top left there, uh, Thomas uh, Norfolk and Suffolk at the top, and Darcy is just sort of bottom left there, and several other names who are prominent in in Henry VIII's court after 1529. So we're rapidly coming uh, to Wolsey's final downfall and death. I sort of skirted over those parliamentary articles because even though there's lots of them and they're very impressive, nothing actually came of them. No higher punishment awaited Wolsey at this time, mostly because there was no need Wolsey was already exactly where Henry VIII wanted him. By admitting to Priminere and saying, you can take whatever you want of me, Wolsey sort of, anything that Wolsey now had was the king's to give. And, and Henry made Wolsey wait. So it's not until February 1530 that Wolsey receives a general pardon and most of his lands, titles and goods were forfeited to the king. He was allowed to retain the Archbishopric of York and something approaching £4,000 a year with which to live on. I mean, this is a paltry sum compared to the £30,000 it's estimated he had at the beginning of 1529, but it's still not a bad figure to be you know, retiring on. His Cardinals College at Ipswich was lost and eventually destroyed, uh, but his Oxford College did survive the fall and it was transformed briefly into King's College and then to Christchurch, where it remains today. But there is a sting in the tail to Wolsey's fall, he could have retired to York and just sort of stayed out of political affairs, and he would have probably been left alone. Even though there are people within court that are still not a fan of him, he's in York, he's away from power, he's away from influence, it would have been fine. But Wolsey couldn't let it lie. He tried to get back into the king's favour by working with various foreign ambassadors and therefore working with various foreign powers to get back into the king's favour and basically he's corresponding throughout 1530 and by the summer there's rumours in the court that Wolsey was up to something to try and regain the favour the problem is they think that this is now well not the problem for them they're very happy about this they think that these negotiations are actually starting to turn treasonous because this is all going on behind Henry's back and what the rumours they're hearing are are actually very treasonous indeed Through correspondence with the French, Wolsey had allegedly hatched a plan for them to encourage England to engage in war with both Emperor and Pope, therefore having Henry excommunicated, and the realm impoverished, unless he recalled his former favourite minister, who had orchestrated it that upon his return all these ills would just disappear. It was a risky plan, and if true, it's a sign of pure desperation from Wolsey, which is why it probably wasn't entirely true. However... The court were getting this information from people within Wolsey's household particularly his Venetian doctor Agostino Agostini and he'd said that these negotiations were exactly that they were negotiating for to try and get Henry to uh, attack the pope and to attack. So the most important thing about this is that Henry believes these rumors and the account of Wolsey's machination with the French against Henry actually comes from a letter Henry, the king himself wrote to Sir Francis Bryan, who was his ambassador at the French court. So on 4th of November at Kayward, near York, Wolsey was charged with high treason and told to return to London to answer these charges. But he never makes it that far. He gets as far as Leicester and dies on the 29th of November, 1530. The picture here is actually from Shakespeare, but uh, he dies off-screen in Shakespeare but they say, oh, he's died on the way to London at Leicester. What a shame. We're very sorry to see him gone. And this is actually from his final very long speech in Shakespeare where he says, well, what a folly it is to follow kings. His biographer, George Cavendish, actually says that Wolsey's last words were, I see the matter against me, how it is framed. But if I have served God as diligently as I have done the king, he would not have given me over in my grey hairs, which, as you can see at the bottom there, Shakespeare basically pinched for his play. Almost verbatim. So all that's left is to divvy the spoils. With Wolsey dead, the official government record kicks back in because government record, a lot of these things are coming into king's hands, in crown hands, so we have the records. So at the bottom there is the Inquisition post-mortem for Wolsey's uh, estate and goods in Oxfordshire. Um, these are sent around to see just just how much someone had after their death. And at the top there, um, it's it's an account of the Abbey of St. Albans, which was actually a gift from Henry to Wolsey in 1521, but he lost it as part of his primi charges. And the front illumination here, that's what that says in Latin. And it basically says it's an account of the Bailey's collectors, etc., that's in the king's hands because of the primi of Thomas Cardinal of York. So we have several records as well after he's died and after his fall as things start to come into crown hands. And I'm aware that I'm very short of time, but just as we had a lot of very serious, quite heavy documents, so we're gonna go a little bit into portraiture and pictures because it's a little lighter to end the talk on. And Wolsey's dead now, so we can forget about him a bit and just think about his legacy. Um, So this picture on the left, you may know very well. The main reason you may know it very well is because it's pretty much the only contemporary portrait we have of Wolsey. And as you can see from the picture on the right, which is 18th century, Almost all portraits after that are based on this, this picture, so you may often see him usually looking that way. Some of them, they sort of mix it up and make him look the other way, but he's always, on, with that stance, with his cardinal's robes and hat on, looking away to the left somewhere. More recently, you may know Wolsey from his portrayals on screen. So on the left is the most recent one, Jonathan Price in Wolf Hall. Um, he's in the very early stages because obviously Wolf Hall is about Thomas Cromwell who was Wolsey's secretary and did a lot of Wolsey's paperwork and accounts before he rose and sort of filled a bit of the gap that Wolsey left when he fell. Uh, the one on the right is Sam Neil in The Tudors um, which is probably the one that portrays Wolsey in the most positive light because it gets some of his earlier negotiations and successes before the inevitable fall and disgrace. And then in the centre we have Orson awesome Welles, the truly monstrous portrayal of Wolsey um, the a Man all Seasons is, of course, the Thomas More biopic uh, from 1966. It's won several Oscars. But where are they getting this portrayal from? They get it some, partly from Cavendish biography, but mostly it's from Shakespeare's portrayal, and Shakespeare actually nicks a lot of the Cavendish stuff for his play, Henry VIII or All is True. Um, Henry VIII is the play which burnt down the Globe Theatre in 1613 when they fired a cannon, so it, it holds that <laughs> Uh, Shakespeare's Wolsey is sort of the classic Shakespeare figure, the great manipulator, and he's playing king and pope against each other. And sort of the first acts are about him bringing down the Duke of Buckingham and then about the great matter and the divorce and then about how he's actually been sort of conniving with the pope to trying not to get the divorce and then eventually actually to bring Catherine back into the fold. So We have some pictures and some, the picture that has been advertised in this talk is actually of Henry Irving who played Cardinal Wolsey in the 1890s in Shakespeare's adaptation and it's a beautiful 1905 picture and much better than the portrait which I showed earlier and also one that we have in our collection so we can show it off a lot more. So to, to briefly sum up and conclude, Wolsey had great successes, he earned those successes largely because he, he was ambitious, he was talented, he was a great negotiator but he was also vain uh, he also spent lavishly. A lot of people resented him for it because he did monopolise the king's time, money and probably interest for between 1515 and 1525, certainly. But over the 1520s, he loses the confidence of Henry VIII and that is crucial. Once he's lost the confidence of Henry and Henry starts to bring other people in, Wolsey starts to lose his grasp on proceedings and therefore people that want to see him do, him do him harm start telling Henry that Wolsey's been up to no good. And Henry also goes, OK, if I want to get rid of Wolsey, I've now got all of these things in my back pocket. And when he finally loses interest in Wolsey, loses confidence in Wolsey in 1529, he has the primary charges which he can put through King's bench, which sends a great message to the Pope, brings, puts Wolsey out of the picture because he's lost confidence in him and allows for other people to come in. And then luckily, Wolsey dies a year later, so there's no him trying to claw back into power. and sort of the second half of Henry's reign, where we get Cromwell and Moore, who obviously all ended up very happily, happily every after and weren't killed at all. <laughs> and the second half of Henry's reign, which was without Wolsey. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.